This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours. We're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was written in the mid-60s of the first century to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ, back to the Old Covenant, back to the types and shadows, and to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours today to talk about Hebrews chapter 7 is Dr. Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's a longtime student of the book of Hebrews, an active pastor and author of commentaries on the books of Acts and the Revelation. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, let's set the background for Hebrews chapter 10 by doing something that might seem a little unusual, but let's look at the end of the chapter at verses 25 and then 32 through 34 to kind of get a sense of what's going on really for the whole book, but also for chapter 10. It's interesting that this chapter, like some other texts, does kind of give us a window on what's going on in the life of those Hebrew Christians in the first century. In verse 25, he gives the warning and the caution that we should not neglect the gathering of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, which is a clue that obviously not the congregation that's hearing this read right now are absent, but some are not gathering with the Christian church for worship. And verses 32 through 34 gives us some indications, perhaps, of why that might be, because there the author actually takes them back to the beginning of their Christian life and mentions some of the suffering that they had experienced at the very beginning, being subjected to public ridicule, some in prison, some face the loss of their property. And he will mention again later on this threat of some being imprisoned that might tempt people to step back from their commitment to Christ and their gathering with the people of God under the pressure, the social pressure of rejection. Next couple of chapters, he'll mention the rejection of Christ, the reproach of Christ that they are called to endure as those who belong to him. So they're under pressure to stop gathering together, and some apparently are in danger of succumbing to that. And so let's connect that to where we are here in chapter 10. He's going to make that application here in chapter 10 about drawing near with confidence. The same thing that he said back in chapter 4 when he said that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. We can draw near to find grace for timely help. That's what we need to persevere. And of course, that worship is exactly what our great Savior and our God is worthy of as well. And that's not a problem that plagued only the first century church. It's a problem that I guess every pastor and every ruling elder who's listening to this discussion has faced in his ministry and service. That's so true. And the sad thing is that for that first century church, the pressure that tempted them to pull away from the church was actual, overt social rejection persecution. Here in America and in the West generally, we don't face that, and far less momentous distractions may tempt people to think, I don't really need to be in the worshiping community of God's people for whatever reason. And yet that's desperately where we need to be and obviously where we're called to be as those who've been redeemed by the grace of God. So in verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow 
of the good things to come instead of the true form, that's the ESV translation of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. When he says law here, how is he using that word? And and then connect that to shadows. What does that mean? Well, he's speaking specifically at this point, it's clearly the law of Moses, and it's specifically what he has in mind is the sacrificial law, the law related to the sanctuary, as he's going to go on to talk about what he puts under the category of shadows are the repeated animal sacrifices that could never cleanse the conscience, could never really accomplish atonement for sin. So it's in that sense that he's talking about the law, and and we need the reality. We need the true form. The word that he uses there is the word icon, which we uses image, but it's the reality. It's the substance that casts the shadow back into the Old Testament scriptures from the new covenant reality of Christ's sacrifice. I want you to go back and say that again, because that is a very important way of thinking that is probably not what the listener expected you to say. Because most of the time we think of the shadows coming, we think of things sort of being projected from the old into the new, and you just said something else. So do that again. Okay, when he talks about the Old Testament sacrifices as shadow, his perspective is really that the reality that would come into history is the reality that casts its shape, its form, back in history, back into the Old Testament. And that's his way of looking at the Old Testament sacrifices as types, as patterns that are effective in a certain sense because they're dependent upon the reality of Christ's sacrifice to come, but need to be repeated so often because the once-for-all sacrifice, the reality, had not yet arrived. So they were previews. And I think his imagery here is beautiful that, in effect, in the new covenant, the arrival of what he calls the last days, the reality has come, and we look back into history, seeing it casting its shadows backward in time. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And there's even a sense in Hebrews, isn't there, where not only does this work on historical plane, but that there are heavenly realities that cast shadows back into the Old Testament. Yes, he's used that exact kind of picture in chapter 8 when he described the tabernacle. He says that Moses gave the instructions for the building of the tabernacle according to the pattern that had been shown him on the mountain, which was really a visionary glimpse of God's heavenly throne room. And so the tabernacle is an earthly replica built as a model off of the template of the original in heaven. So this is instructive, this language here in chapter 10, verse 1, is instructive for the way that we need to read Scripture, the way we need to let the New Testament guide us to understanding the Old Testament, and then bringing the whole package, if you will, of Scripture together. That's so absolutely true. The reality that comes in Christ is the key to our really rightly understanding all the ways in which God embedded signals and anticipations into the historical life of Israel. It's Christ who makes sense of all that we read in the Old Testament. And so this is a fleshing out of one of the slogans we've been working with in this series, that Moses works for Jesus, that all of this is working for, pointing to Christ, so that when Jesus came, it was the fulfillment of God's intention and not a byproduct. There really isn't any other way, according to Hebrews, of looking at what happened when Jesus came and announced the arrival of the kingdom of God. 
Exactly. Hebrews says back in chapter 3, Moses is a servant testifying to things that would be spoken in the future. And of course, that's what he's describing now. It's the fulfillment in Christ. Just as Jesus said in his earthly ministry, Moses spoke of him and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and other writings all were pointed toward him as the great fulfiller of the redemptive plan of God. And so that's why he says in verse 2 that otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But, verse 3, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, his mention of yearly sacrifice shows that he is really thinking of the Day of Atonement, that one day of the whole year when the high priest would enter into the most holy place, he alone, with the blood of the sacrifices. The point is that he's making here is that if that atoning sacrifice could ever really, truly, deeply cleanse the conscience, the word the ESV renders here, consciousness, is really the same Greek word that we would elsewhere render conscience. If it could cleanse our conscience and cleanse our record of guilt, then there would be some Yom Kippur sacrifice that would end it all and never need to be repeated. But that very requirement that it be repeated year after year was one of the ways in which God testified that animal sacrifices could never remove sin. I think this is a clue that he's still writing while the temple is still standing, and he's arguing from the fact that those sacrifices are still going on, that that in itself is a testimony to the fact that they're never complete and never accomplish the goal for which we long, and that is true cleansing of sin and guilt. In verses 5 through 8, he quotes Psalm 40, verses 7 through 9, and says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. Now, this is a fascinating thing from which to move. He goes from the sacrifices being fulfilled in Christ to this quotation of of Psalm 40. What's happening here? Well, he's really using Psalm 40 to summarize two ways of atonement. One is the way of animal sacrifices and whole burnt offerings, appropriate and, as he will go on to say, commanded by the law. So when he says, in quoting the psalm, you have not desired these things, it's not that in no sense did God command them. They were, but they were never sufficient. And here we have a text embedded in the Old Testament, while Aaronic priests are still offering those sacrifices day by day, and then the descendant of Aaron going in year by year on the Day of Atonement, that testifies to the fact that those sacrifices are not the ultimate answer, not God's ultimate answer for the issue of our sin. The answer is... Now, in the inspired words of the psalmist, who's really speaking the words of Christ as he comes into the world, the introduction there, the answer is the offering by the Son of the human body prepared for him by the Father in the incarnation. In fact, he'll go on in the commentary in just a couple of verses to say it's by that will, referencing the psalm, the will of God, that Christ has offered up his body echoing the psalm as well, to sanctify, that is, to purify the conscience, to bring forgiveness to those who trust in him. And this psalm seems to suggest, as it's being quoted here, that behind the incarnation is something else. In other words, this dialogue that takes place reflects a relationship between the Father and the Son, and we might even say an agreement 
or a covenant that existed between the Father and the Son before the Incarnation, and even, perhaps, before history. I suspect so. I suspect so. You know, these little hints and cues and clues that were given of what we now call a covenant of redemption among the persons of the Trinity, and especially the commitment of the Father to give a people to his Son, and the Son to come to redeem that people at the cost of his life. We just get these little hints, but they're so clearly here. Here in this text, John 17 as well, but here in that introduction, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, so in his entering into our human life in the incarnation, he's coming in to complete this mission that he and the Father have agreed upon and that the Father has assigned to him in that covenant. Salvation wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that just happened. It was the fulfillment of a divine intention that Jesus came for a people whom he knew. He came for a people whom the Father knew. He came for a people whom the Father had given to the Son. And so that when we think of ourselves, we who believe should think of ourselves as those who have been redeemed by divine intention, by a divine pre-temporal eternal covenant. And I think that has significant consequences for who we are, what we are, how we think about salvation, and how we think about divine intentionality, especially as we add up all of the clues, as you say, scattered across the New Testament. I'm thinking of John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. I've come and I've done the work that you've given me to do. And I always go back to Psalm 110, which is a major text behind the whole book of Hebrews, really. Exactly. And you could add in as well what Paul says in Ephesians 1 about our being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So that whole dimension of sovereignly gracious election, personal choice by the Father of individuals, notwithstanding the sin that we would commit in Adam and in ourselves, but chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world is another perspective on this, as you say, pretemporal, eternal plan and purpose of God for every individual that he's going to unite to Christ by faith. In verse 8, it says, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then verse 9, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first order in order to establish the second. So what is the first order and what is the second order? And what's an order here? Well, the order is this whole system by which guilt and sin is dealt with. And in the Old Testament, the first order is that order that in some sense, of course, predates Moses because we know that there are sacrifices offered before the tabernacle, but he's really focusing on the institution of the tabernacle and the temple and the various provisions for the sacrifices for sin and for atonement that are referenced in Leviticus. And he says that whole order, though ordained by the law, So it's not an accident, it's commanded by God, but it's not the ultimate. And so the psalm uses such strong language here, you did not desire those, because there's something far better that was God's ultimate purpose and desire, God's will, and that is the offering of the body of Christ as the once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses the conscience. What does he mean in verse 10 about being sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? What's the background of that, and what is he trying to get us to think? It's interesting. He uses here a perfect tense that refers to something essentially already accomplished, although it has ongoing ramifications. And the writer to the Hebrews uses sanctified many times in a way a little different from the way we're customarily used to using it in theology. He's not at this point, I believe, talking about that process by which the Holy Spirit, over the course of our lives, works 
to root sin out of our hearts and conform us more to the image of Christ. What we would talk about is sanctification, that work of God that transforms us. He's really talking about that decisive, foundational, sacrificial work of Christ that cleanses us. It's a priestly perspective, I would say, on what Paul would call justification. Paul talks about it in those legal terms that uh, we are, first of all, exonerated or Actually, our guilt is removed because Christ has borne it, and then we're credited with Christ's righteousness. The preacher to the Hebrews really talks about it like a priestly consecration that removes our defiled record so that we can begin to worship. And that's what he has in mind here when he talks about that we have been sanctified through the blood of Christ. And so the background here is Yom Kippur. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And so, in a sense, Jesus is the final, ultimate Yom Kippur He's the thing to which Yom Kippur had been pointing for all those years, and everything that it signaled and suggested and implied has all come to realization once for all in the finished work of Jesus. Precisely. I'm going to succumb to the temptation to take that just a step further. If you think about the two goats on Yom Kippur, one over which sins were confessed and sent away into the wilderness, and the other then sacrificed, both of them portray the work of Christ. One, the effect of Christ's work in that our sins are removed from us as far as the East is from the West. The other, the means by which he's accomplished that, which is his own substitutionary death. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I think we understand that in light of what we've said. And then verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And this gets us back to where we were a moment ago, Psalm 110. There are believers, brothers and sisters, who really struggle with this notion that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And this language here, the image invoked here, is an image of royal power. It is of royal power. Now, he also brings a priestly perspective into it, and this is, of course, consistent with what we've seen, that Jesus, in fulfilling the order of Melchizedek, is both king and priest. Of course, he drew that whole analogy out in chapter 7, and then in chapter 8, he focuses on the heavenly locale of Jesus' enthronement at the right hand of God, not on earth, but in heaven. And now he even focuses on the dimension of the posture of Christ, because he just contrasted the Old Testament Aaronic priests standing to offer sacrifices. They cannot get off their feet because their work is never done. Mm. Jesus' atoning work has been completed, so he sits. He sits as priest because he never needs to atone for our sin again. He's offered the sacrifice once for all. It's done. It's done. And, as you say, he sits as a priest who is also a king, waiting for his enemies to be made subject to his feet. Also, Psalm 110. And they're in the process, then, of being put under his feet. That's the history of the period between the ascension of Jesus and his entering into rest having conquered sin, death, and he's in the process of bringing his enemies under his feet, and then he will return in visible glory. And this is the thing that the Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to turn away, this is the thing they need to understand, that it's been done, and there's nowhere else to go. If they go backwards, they go back to that which is unfinished, where priests are still standing, where lambs are still bleeding, and with which God is not ultimately pleased. Exactly, precisely. Quickly, verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being 
sanctified. Is he adding anything to what he said earlier about sanctification, or is this the same thing? He may be at this point bridging over into what we normally would think of as that process of sanctification. Again, building it, basing it on this once-for-all finished work, which he talks about in terms of perfection. Not again, at this point, our subjective moral sinlessness, but in the language that he's used throughout, the language of priestly consecration. We've been perfected for all time. We have access into the throne room of God through Christ. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their minds. Then, he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, we've already touched on that in substance, but he quotes here Jeremiah 31. And so what's the function of Jeremiah 31? What's he saying about the new covenant relative to the old? Walk us through that a bit. Of course, he's quoted Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 at length in the introduction to this whole section of the superiority of the new covenant in chapter 8. And now he comes back and he pulls two pieces out. And by that little transition, then he adds, it's as though he's saying, look for two things here, two benefits of the new covenant. One, I will write my law in their hearts and on their minds. And that is the subjective transformation that the Holy Spirit now affects in drawing us to union with Christ. And that is part of the reason why I think he may be bridging over into our normal idea of sanctified in verse 14. There is a new transformation that comes, an internal transformation. But then he wants to go on to point out that fundamental blessing of the new covenant that he's really been emphasizing throughout, and this is forgiveness of sins. I will remember their sins no more. Beautiful contrast to what he had said at the beginning of the chapter. In the Day of Atonement sacrifice, there is a reminder of sins every day, not removal. Reminder. Reminder not only to us, but in a certain sense, a memorial reminder to God of how sinful his people are. But in the new covenant, God's commitment is, I will remember their sins no more. Full and free forgiveness because Christ has accomplished the final, completely effective atoning sacrifice. Now, there were believers in Jesus before the new covenant, and they were looking forward to this finished work, and they were accepted by God ultimately on the basis of that finished work that would come. Here we are, the new covenant on the other side historically of that finished work, benefiting from it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the contrast here is between the new and the old, and the old is Moses. So help us understand a little more clearly what the difference is between the old and the new. 
the difference has to do with these structures of atonement. And I think as we think about it, we'd have to say that Old Covenant believers, as they were called and commanded by God to express their faith in the offering of animal sacrifices, as God provided and so on in prayer for forgiveness as they look forward, were already tasting new covenant benefits even before that final sacrifice that establishes the new covenant had come. Voss at one point talks about the new covenant reaching its wings out over the old covenant believers and drawing them under its wings, and I think that's a beautiful picture. And the same thing would be true of the Spirit's internal work of sanctification. It's not as though he had not begun a new work in Abraham or David, and though they certainly wrestled with sin as we do, he was in the process of transforming them to the Christ who was to come. So the contrast is not so much a focus on the completely different internal spiritual experience of believers in old and new, but it's that we stand in this privileged place of having seen the foundation, the redemptive foundation having been laid for what we benefit from and what the old covenant saints benefit from as they looked ahead to how is it going to be that they could be forgiven? How is it going to be that they could be transformed? And we now see the answer to that in what Christ has done and the work of the Spirit. We live in light of the reality, and they lived in light of promise and shadow and expectation. In both instances, the covenant of grace is operating, but for those who were living under Moses, old covenant strictly defined, they had another relation to the law. They had a temporary national status as the church and as a a national political people, and they had the 613 commandments, which were somewhat burdensome, and intentionally so, provocatively so, pedagogically so. Is that a way to think about this, to think about the difference between the old and the new, that there was a kind of temporary quality to the administration under which they experienced the covenant of grace, and we now are no longer under that. I think that is a good way to speak of it, and I think that really is what is in view in Jeremiah 31, and you see it in the longer quotation back in chapter 8, where he talks to Israel as a covenant people and says, you broke my covenant, and the new covenant that I'm going to make with my people after those days is going to be a covenant in which I write my law in their hearts. As a covenant people, as the author and his readers know so well from the pages of Scripture, as a people, Israel violated God's covenant and ended up in exile. In a certain sense, even though many had settled in the land by the first century, they're still, in a sense, in exile because they're under now the thumb of Rome. And so as a covenant people, they'd broken the covenant. God is now promising these new covenant blessings. The old covenant, insofar as it was mosaic and temporary and national and legal, insofar as those things are true, it was a kind of covenant that could be broken. The covenant of grace— and particularly as it comes to expression in the new covenant, is not a covenant that can be broken. Is that fair? I think that's fair. But as we say that, we need to remember, even as you know, toward the end of this chapter, we're going to come to the possibility that some who have been part of the new covenant community turn away from it, apostatize. Of course, he's talked about that in chapter 6 as well. So it's not as though we somehow, as, say, leaders of the church, have to have 100% certain knowledge that an individual is elect and regenerate, as though we could read hearts, before we let them into the visible church. There's still that prospect of apostasy from participation in the visible church. So this is where it's helpful to distinguish between the covenant itself and God's unconditional acceptance of us in Christ and its administration. 
Exactly. Very important to keep that distinction. When we confuse those two things and we say the covenant is its administration, then we run into this difficulty you were describing because there are people who talk about the new covenant in the way that you were suggesting that. Once someone is admitted to the new covenant or having been admitted, that there's no way that they could ever depart. And that fails to acknowledge the reality that we see here in chapter 10, which is where we want to go right now. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his, Jesus, flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We'll stop there and consider those verses. Well, he's now building, obviously, this case for the superiority of Christ's sacrifice, not only in terms of this amazing benefit of forgiveness of sins, cleansing of conscience, no longer a need for repeated sacrifices, but now also that access into the presence of God in worship that Jesus has opened for us. And again, he's picking up the language of the Day of Atonement when the high priest goes through that inner veil into the most holy place only once a year. He says, now, all of us who trust Jesus, because his flesh was, as it were, torn, and he's remembering that the Gospels actually record the tearing of the veil in the temple, because his flesh was torn, he's ushered us into the very presence of God. And that's where we need to be. That's where we belong in God's grace. And that should give us confidence and courage. And he uses an interesting word here, boldness, so that it would be even presumptuous for anyone to go into the Holy of Holies unless he was qualified, unless he had the office, unless God had approved that. And so all of that's embedded here in this language. So that when we pray in Christ's name to the Father, we do so, we go into the Holy of Holies, or we do so even in Christ standing in the Holy of Holies. We have the closest possible access an intimacy to God that Scripture ever describes. It's beyond imagination, and yet the Scripture tells us this is exactly our privilege, to approach God with that unique official privilege because Jesus, our high priest, is there and has atoned for us. And as he said back in chapter 9 about Jesus' high priestly ministry, it's not just an earthly copy. Though we can't see it, in our prayers, we, in a sense, are approaching God in the heavenly original, the template that was shown Moses on the mountain. We can speak to God and his ear is toward us from heaven, his true dwelling place. We're not barging in where we're not wanted. Not at all. Not at all. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see, the day drawing near. Now, we've already touched on these a little bit, but just quickly, that expression, the day, in the ESV, it's capitalized. It is the day of Christ's return. It's the day of the consummation, fulfillment of God's promise. When Jesus comes back, last judgment, ushering the new heavens and the new earth in, and he's reminding us that we're not home yet. What he said in chapter 3 and 4 from Psalm 95, that we are a people of the wilderness still in pilgrimage. Yes, in the presence of God, with the presence of God traveling with us, but it means that we're not yet in the promised land fully and completely. So that's where he's going. And the other thing I think it's really important to notice in these verses, hearers might have heard us talking a minute ago about our privilege of prayer, entering into the very 
throne room of God, and they might think of it only individualistically. And it's true that when we pray as individual believers, the Father hears us. But notice that the preacher to the Hebrews here is thinking very much of the church together, coming together, gathering together, encouraging one another. He even uses the language of provoking one another to love and good deeds. And this is all integral to what he's called us to in verse 23, holding fast the confession of our hope. We don't do this as isolated individuals. We do this as we draw strength from the Lord through our communion with him in worship, which is really what he has particularly in mind here in terms of corporate worship. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Reformed people frequently speak about the due use of ordinary means, and that's in the context of public worship, which is the context, really, as you note, that Hebrews is thinking about. So it's interesting that piety in Scripture typically begins with the corporate and then overflows to the individual, which is hard for us as Americans, I think, to grasp because we tend to think of piety as, first of all, an individual thing that we voluntarily bring together and collect. And so Hebrews wants us to turn that around and think of it differently. All right. And then here comes the more difficult part of the chapter, perhaps in some ways. Verse 26, 4, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but, verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here the pastor is revisiting that theme that he discussed in chapter 6 of the dire results of apostasy, of turning away from trust in Christ and living by trust in Christ in any other direction to turn in any other way. When he says, go on sinning deliberately, we might read that first, and that that's a good translation because those are the words that he's using, but we might read that as thinking, oh, if I, if I ever choose to disobey the Lord, if it doesn't just sneak up on me by accident, then I'm lost. I'm lost. That's not really what he's getting at because he wants to emphasize that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins for God's people always. But this point, sinning deliberately, sinning with a high hand, as the Old Testament says, as he draws the analogy to the law of Moses, is this deliberate turning away in repudiating the Christ whom we once confess. And that's where he says, if you turn away from Christ, as we already know from Psalm 40, those Old Testament sacrifices, if you want to go back there, God's already said, I'm not pleased with them. There's no sacrifice for sin that's really effective if you go back. There's no way to deal with your guilt apart from Christ. So there's no other sacrifice if you turn away from Christ. And therefore, all you can expect is judgment unless you stay close to clinging to Jesus, who is the one who can protect us from God's wrath. This is about turning away from Christ and seeking to be accepted by God in some other way outside of Jesus. And it's important to maybe to emphasize that to, to make sure the listener understands that there's a very specific thing being envisioned here and not, if we might say, no sins are run of the mill. But when we do sin voluntarily... And we're 
responsible and need to repent and confess because Christ has covered them. But this is about turning away from Jesus and looking for some other way to get to God, which is important for us, again, as late modern Americans to hear and reckon with, because some evangelicals are tempted to suggest that, well, yes, the best thing is to come to God through Jesus. But it's not as if Jesus is the only way. And Hebrews here, in its own way, is reinforcing what Jesus himself said, that there is no other way to God except through Jesus and his finished work. Exactly. And when he describes the nature of this kind of turning away from Christ with languages like trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, outraging the spirit of grace, he says this is all very personal. If you suggest or embrace the idea that there is some other way for you to get close to God other than through the cross, you're in effect saying that the Son of God himself deserved the wrath that he endured on the cross, that it was not for others, it was not for you. It was for himself. It was for himself. And the blood that he shed to establish the new covenant, you're treating it as common blood, as unclean blood, not as that blood that is so necessary as he offered us life to atone for our sins. And the Spirit as well, who is outraged at the insult to the Son. And this is the language of the Old Testament. This is the language of the ancient Near East. The image here is of walking between the pieces and taking covenant oaths, which when we unite with the visible Christ-confessing covenant community, we walk between the pieces. When we come to the Lord's table, we take on ourselves a solemn oath, and we say, this body was broken for me, this blood was shed for me, this death is for me. It's my death. And when you turn away from that, you do place yourself in real jeopardy before the same God who caused the earth to open up and swallow people and who caused a sea to destroy Pharaoh and his hosts and before that to destroy the world that then was. So the writer to the Hebrews is invoking those kinds of images to remind these people that outside of Jesus is only one thing. And it's not grace, it's not forgiveness, it's only judgment, and it's only destruction. No wonder he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So in the new covenant, the God that we worship isn't any less holy or less fearsome than the God that we knew under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and particularly under Moses. Not at all. In fact, you notice how he introduces that Old Testament quotation, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Verse 30, he says, we know him who said. This is the same living God, absolutely abundant in compassion, mercy, faithful love, and also absolutely burning pure in his holiness and his righteousness and his wrath. And as he does then in verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, maybe baptized, at least in some way, changed, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed, verse 33, to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. 
This is verse 37 and then 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. This text shows so beautifully that this consummate pastoral wisdom of this author, obviously he's writing scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But just as he did in chapter 6, when he laid out the dire consequences of apostasy, and he talked in the imagery of farmland that would receive rain, and some would bear good fruit, but some would bear unprofitable fruit and would be fit for burning. And then he would say there, but we're persuaded of better things of you, things that are appropriate to those who are receiving salvation, and remind them of what God had done in and among them in the past. He's doing the same things here. He says, remember, and remember how you You had lived by faith in enduring suffering of various kinds, public ridicule, imprisonment, the loss of property. He's going to build on that one when he talks about this inheritance that is ours, that is eternal, because in chapter 11, he's going to talk about others who were looking for a lasting city and an inheritance and glad to give things up. So he says, you stand in continuity with people of faith of the Old Testament. So be encouraged, certainly be warned, but also be encouraged. And now in this present trial, where you're called to bear the reproach of Christ. Perhaps some of you have already been imprisoned. He's going to say in chapter 13, we need to keep remembering the prisoners. When the pressure is on again, recall how God kept you faithful then and hold fast in faith and look to God to give you the grace to persevere. And it's by faith, the perseverance and the holding on and the obeying and the giving up of property. All of that, he says, pivots on one thing, trusting in the finished work of Jesus, which itself is a gift from God. Exactly. And so he quotes here a text that in a certain sense is the umbrella text for the whole next chapter. My righteous one will live by faith. Paul's favorite verse from Habakkuk, maybe? (laughs) It's one of the key verses for the preacher to the Hebrews, too. Living by faith, living by faith, not drawing back, but trusting in God, trusting in his promises, trusting in his warnings, and letting that trust then influence our response. So Noah, by faith, will build an ark. Abel, even before Noah, by faith, offers a sacrifice. That's what distinguishes Abel's sacrifice from Cain's. He offers it in faith in the promises of God. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.